Hey, New Life Church, Bronson Duke here. Thanks for listening in. The heart of our church is that you would know Jesus, that you would walk with Jesus, and you would learn how to live like he lived. We hope that this message equips you and empowers you on your journey walking with Jesus. All right. Good morning. How is everyone? Hey, stand to your feet. Uh, if you didn't hear Robert yelling over the music, what he said was, if you're in high school or middle school, uh, we've got a class for you in the back. We've got a service going on for you, so we'd love for you to step out and do that. But right now, uh, we're standing for the reading of God's Word. Let's read. Okay, we're in Matthew 16, uh, verses 1 through 12. One day, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give them is the prophet of Jonah, is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, You have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast and bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you've yet to do. God, I pray that you would awaken our hearts, God, this morning to hear your word, to join in your purposes to walk with innocence and freedom in our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. Come on, all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. Um, well, welcome. My name is Brunson. I'm one of the pastors and the leaders here. Uh, we are coming up on five years as a church here in this location. That's a good place to give the Lord a hand. Uh, I think it's in like two weeks or something like that. We're going to have our five-year anniversary, which is amazing. Well, if you've been journeying with us this past five or so weeks, uh, we've been in a series called Human, and what we've been looking at is what does it mean to be a human being? What are the ways that we're wired? Uh, what are the things that we need to thrive and flourish? And I talked about this in the first or second week. Uh, human is kind of like a, a bad thing to us, right? Like when you say I'm only human, you're not saying like I'm only human, crushing the game, right? You're saying like I'm only human, I'm making mistakes. And, and, and I believe that what Christ came to do is to be the ultimate picture of what a human being could be, but also to invite us into that life. Amen? And so what we're going to look at today, so the first time that I preached, we talked about desire. And we talked about how the things that we do form our desires. And, and here's why that's important. Our desires lead our life, right? The thing that you most want is the thing that you end up most doing. Amen? That's why there's certain things where like, why do I keep doing this over and over and over again? It's because you really want to, right? 
And so how do we change that? One, it's the power of, the God, power of God and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But then two, it's joining in the work of God through consistent habits. Everybody say habits. So that was week one. We talked about that. Uh, week two, we talked about cultural liturgies. Do you all remember that? Uh, and we talked about the power of uh, advertising and all those things. There are gods of our culture. Those gods have cathedrals and those gods have spiritual practices, right? And so if we're going to be formed in the image of Christ, we have to be aware of those things and to have stronger counterformational practices in place to help us become like Jesus in the midst of a lost and hurting, broken world. Amen? The next week we talked about forgiveness. Whew. Anybody have any work to do after that week? And last week, we talked about growth. And so this week, uh, we're going to talk about something that I have massively struggled with uh, throughout my life. This is not me preaching my strength. This is me preaching my weakness. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about cynicism and the poison that cynicism is to being a person of potent faith. Amen? And so my thesis, if you're taking notes for my fellow nerds in the audience... My thesis is this, is that cynicism is a deadly poison in the well of faith. Cynicism is a deadly poison in the well of faith. Recommended reading for this series, uh, if you like to read, there's a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. I'm not pulling from that at all this week, uh, but it is my recommended reading for the series. Cool? Okay, uh, you guys remember... The, the, when you first started like a job or you moved to a new city and there's always like that person you meet, you're like, this person's got it. You know what I'm talking about? Like the it person, okay? You come in, or whether you're in sales, it's like this person is the best salesman. They're dominating the game. And if you're smart, what you do is you get close to that person, right? Why? Because you want to glean from them, you want to learn from them, and you want to learn all their practices so that you can be successful, amen? My first sales job, uh, the it guy, was a guy named Jared Horton, all right? Jared Horton was a boss, all right? Uh, he ran that place, he was full of confidence, he was hardworking, he was running and gunning, uh, he was slinging deals, okay? This guy was making it happen. And so I would always hang around his desk, and I say, Jared, uh, you know, what you working on? What you working on? What you doing? I'm trying to watch and learn from him. And he'd always say this, and this has beco this has become a part of like Duke family lore. We still say this. He'd say, he said, he said, don't worry about what I'm doing. He said, why don't you go back and sit in your own desk? Worry about what you're doing. Don't worry about what I'm doing. Worry about what you're doing. Okay. And honestly, that stuck with me, right? He was saying, if you spent more time over there making calls and less time over here bothering me, you'd probably make some sales. Amen. And so this formed me, this impacted me, okay? At home, when my kids are bothering me and I'm working on something, I say, don't worry about what I'm doing, go worry about what you're doing. Go find some toys or something like that to play with, right? Maybe not the best, most loving response, but it's honest, right? It impacted me. You know, we've well established this, that the things that we do do something to us, but just as powerful, but maybe more powerful is this, those that we emulate, we end up becoming like. Those that we look at and say, hey, whatever they've got, I want it. Those, those people that we aspire to be have a massive impact on us. And so, y'all, we have to critically examine who we glean from, who we idolize, and who we look to to become. 
You know, almost nothing has a stronger impact on the things you do and the way you view the world than the people you most interact with. The people that you walk with help form your worldviews, they help you make decisions, and they help you form your life. You know, you've heard this before, hopefully. You are the sum total of your five closest friends. That's right, five closest relationships. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. Y'all listen, the successful lone wolf is mythology, all right? All of us who are out there like, I'm running a gun and it's just me, I don't need anybody else. That is a falsity, okay? People who are successful and are lone wolves are just, some, are just people who are not citing their sources, okay? It, it is lifestyle plagiarism. They are learning from others and they're just not giving credit. You'll hear, here, here's the reality. We're going to jump into the text here. We are made to hunt in packs. Human beings are made to hunt in packs. If we're going to be successful, we have to have the people we are walking with. But here is where the issue comes. If the people we are walking with are not walking with Christ, or if the people we are walking with are walking in some of this poison that we're going to look at, it ends up poisoning the potency of our faith. And so what we need to do is we need to be very careful who we listen to, who we idolize, and who we aim to be like. You know, when I first came to New Life Church, I was struck not by the services, by the po- but by the potency of the people. It was the way that people loved each other. It was the way that they spoke life. It was not the music, although the music was good. It was not the preaching, although the preaching was good. It was the community. I- I'd never been around people who refused to gossip about each other. I just never seen that in church. Anybody else? I'd never seen a place where people really protected each other and fought for covenant relationships. Second, it was the way they spoke in faith about their situations, not with naivety, but with faith, right? It, it, it wasn't like this false name it, claim it gospel. I'm the true God of the universe. I speak, therefore it is. No, it was God spoke, therefore, right? David spoke with faith. When he confronted Goliath, what did he say? He said, the same God who saved me from the mouth of the lion and the paw from the bear, of the bear will save me from this godless Philistine. It struck me. You know, our heart for you is that you walk with people who influence you in the ways of faith and you flee from toxic, poisonous religion that stamps out the movements of the kingdom of God. Influential people draw us to themselves and instill in us values and practices on how we can become like them. In our text this morning, Jesus is warning us of the danger if we hitch our life to the wrong people. What he's saying is if you hitch your life to the teachers of religious law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are opposing the work of God, their culture will spread through your life like yeast spreads through dough and it will bloat you with sin and death. Notice he's not talking about prostitutes here, but preachers. He's not talking about the culture. He's talking about religious people. And here's the truth. If you yoke yourself to cynical, self-righteous people, it will stamp out the seed of faith that God has implanted in you. You We have to be vigilant about what we teach in. The warning we see in verse 6 about being aware, being aware, beware of 
the yeast of the Pharisees, we can assume is a follow-up to the interaction he had with the religious leaders of the law in verses 1 through 4. He, he says this, Matthew 16, verse 4, they, they'd asked for a sign from him, and he said, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a sign. You know, this is not what you want recorded in history about you and your faith. <laughs> You do not want to be written down as evil and adulterous. You know, there is so much in this. Uh, what he's alluding to, we can safely assume, is if you go back into Deuteronomy, it talks about how, how the people um, were not, they weren't faithful to God. If you go throughout the Old Testament prophets, it talks about adulterous, like they, they went to other gods instead of Yahweh, their God. And what he's accusing them of here is the same sin that they're trying to stamp out in their own community. What he's saying is, is you think you're following God, but what you've actually done is you've abandoned him. You've abandoned God for your own views of how the world should work and how he moves. We're, we're going to dig deeply into that. Um, the issue here is not that they're asking for a sign. There, there's like precedent for that, right? Like Moses, when he came around, uh, Moses in the expectation that his God-given authority would be challenged, miracles were performed, right? Gideon, he requested to receive a sign to confirm God's promise. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Ahaz and Hezekiah were offered signs to authenticate Isaiah's prophecies. All these things are valid and are important. And so here's what we have to notice. It's not the innocent question of the Pharisees that Jesus is dismissing and rebuking. It's the attitude that they have when they're making it. What is the attitude? They're placing themselves in authority over Christ, and they're placing themselves in the seat of judgment over the things that God has done. What does that mean? It means God is moving among them, and they're missing it. God is moving among them, and they're trying to say, hey, we're the true authority here, not God. You know, religious cynicism is toxic to the life of faith and often causes us to move, miss genuine moves of God. Here's one of my core fears. If you study church history, revivals, times when God moves in powerful ways, all the way back into the scripture, it's constant. The church people almost always seem to miss it. Have you noticed that? If you look back, the people who are supposed to get it almost always seem to miss it. And it's young people, and it's the down and out. It's the people that, that nobody's looking to that God tends to move among. And, and something for me that I'm always asking myself is, God, is there a chance that I could miss you because I think I know what you should be doing? And so then when you move and it doesn't look like what I thought it should look like, I judge it and I tear it apart and I never get to join into it. Point number one, we've got to avoid the poison of cynicism. If we want a life of robust faith in Jesus, we must avoid the poison of cynicism. Verse five, later after they crossed the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus exclaims, watch out! Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This word yeast for us is like a clean analogy, right? We understand yeast, leaven, you put it in bread, it causes the dough to rise, right? For the Jewish people, 
This word yeast or, or leaven in some translations is absolutely loaded with symbolism. To understand it, we have to go back into the Jewish people's heritage and their history. So the Exodus, which is one of the, the major movements of God in the Jewish people, is the time where God led the Israelites, Moses led them by God, out of Egypt into the Promised Land, right? Well, actually into the desert for a long time, and then Joshua led them to the Promised Land. But let's not get bogged down in the details. So what happens at Passover is God says, I'm going to come through. The angel of the Lord is going to come through. And, you know, there's so much here. So I don't, I don't have, we're not going to get into all the layers of it. But it says the angel of the Lord is going to come through, and he's going to take from the people the firstborn, except for those whose houses are covered by the blood of an innocent lamb and whose houses have no yeast in them. So what they had to do is they cleared their homes of yeast and leaven. Now, what was very clear to the Israelites is this was symbolic of sin. So what God is saying is clear your house of sin and be covered by the blood of the lamb. What Jesus is saying here when he says avoid the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees is he's saying avoid the sin of the Pharisees. So I think a really important question we have to ask is what is the sin of the Pharisees that caused them to miss Jesus? I believe, but I want to submit to you, it was, a, it was a cynical attitude over the things that God was doing that did not look how they thought they should look. So how does this play out in us? This is a question I've been asking myself recently. I'm going to give a small confession. Uh, are you, this is a pretty safe crowd, right? I can open up to you guys. Um, how does this play out in us? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was perusing uh, the Facebook machine, and um, a, a friend of mine who I'd known from way back had started posting all kind of God stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Like posting songs and posting God's there for you no matter what. And can I be honest about what rose up in my heart and my mind? I thought, I wonder what he did wrong and got caught doing, and he's now trying to cover up for. And in that moment, it just hit me. I was like, oof. Instead of saying, oh my gosh, God is doing something amazing in his life, I sat and started judging the works of God. Does that sound familiar? Think about it. All throughout, all throughout the scripture, when God's moving in Zacchaeus, the Pharisees are like, he's going to the house of a notorious sinner. All of a sudden, when these radical, these, uh, radical transformations were happening, they weren't met with, met with excitement from the religious people. They were, it was met with skepticism. It was met with cynicism. And, you know, that caused them to miss the very move of God. Another thing that I found in my life, you know, more often than not, revivals start in young people. Why? because young people have a lot less to lose, so their yes is quicker. What happens as we get older is we have a lot to lose, and it takes us a long time to count the cost before we say yes. But young people, they meet God with passion and with faith. And our goal, I believe, is to say young in spirit and for our yes to be quick. But more often than not, revival starts in young people. And right now, all across the country, at colleges, there are people seeking God like crazy on college campuses. And people are coming from miles around to see what happened. Listen, I've watched the sermons and they were terrible. <laughs> but it's irrelevant. Why? 
Because renewal doesn't depend on man, it depends on God. And so what's happening in these moments is people are moving into radical repentance and faith with God, and God is moving among them. And so often we can miss it because we start thinking, ah, they're young and they're emotional. At some point, life will tear them down and they'll see. Or we think, oh, this is revival, it's happened, it won't last. Well, you know what? It won't. The service won't, but the fruit will. And so what we seek is we seek God to move in moments so that fruit can go out through generations. And you know, I believe what we're seeing right now is a really potent seed of faith that is going to have a massive, you know, we are ripe as a country for a move of God. And the thing that would cause us to miss it is a cynical approach when he does move. Is starting to look at transform- radical transformation. Just think about it in your own life. Have you watched somebody change your life and you've met that life change with doubt and a wait and see instead of saying, man, I'm so glad God's moving. I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna intercede for you. N.T. Wright said this. He said, if people watched him, that's Jesus, with only cynicism and criticism, and criticism in their hearts, they would see nothing until the moment that the rumor went around that he had been raised from the dead. That would be the final and devastating sign that God had indeed indeed been with them all along. Yo, I think something that should keep us up at night is that God might move and we might miss it. The scripture tells us all the time, constantly keep a watchful eye for the movements of the Lord. For us to eagerly anticipate, to pray for his return. And y'all, I I believe, this is just my theology, I I believe that we're living in the end times. This is not make or break, this is just my thing, so if you don't like this, that's okay. Uh, I believe that we've been living in the end times since the moment that Christ left, and we're living in the age of the church, and we have no idea when Christ is going to come back, but that doesn't mean that we should anticipate it any less, Right? I believe one day Christ will return and with him will come judgment and restoration. That one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth and we'll reign as kings and priests with Christ. And right now what we're doing is we're living that life of purpose in anticipation for the things that he's going to do. But if we're going to engage, we have to keep our innocence. Amen? So here's the question we have to ask. How do we keep our innocence? How do we keep our innocence? How do we avoid cynicism and keep our innocence? Point two, we have to set up altars. Everyone say altars. Altars. In our hearts. Set up altars in our hearts. Matthew 16, 7 through 10. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. This scene is absolutely hilarious to me. Like, I feel like it had to be Peter. This is just me conjecturing. But I feel like Peter was like, see, you guys didn't bring any bread. John, where's the bread at? Because John is like loving and meek and Peter's bullying him and should have brought the bread, man. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about bread? Don't you even understand? Don't you remember I fed 5,000 with five loaves and you had baskets left over? Or that I had fed 4,000 with seven loaves, and we had large baskets left over. He's saying, we didn't have enough food for the 13 of us. 
And I multiplied what we had and thousands were fed and you're still worried about the bread? You know, how often in our lives, what's up, Paul? Sometimes these guys just nail it and I can never ignore it. How often in our lives are we missing moves of God because we're worried about bread? We're worried about provision. We lack peace. And instead of going to the author of peace, we just sit around and we pout because we don't have it, but we never ask him. How often do we need grace? But instead of running to the throne of grace, we sit in our shame caves, right? We have been offered everything that we need to thrive and flourish in the sufficient power of Christ. But what we find ourselves doing is grumbling about breadcrumbs instead of going to the God of the bread. In this moment, what Christ is saying to the disciples is you don't have to worry about those things. He promised, Matthew 6, we talked about this in week one. If I clothe the lilies of the field, if I if I feed the birds of the air, how much more will I feed you? Don't worry about that. Seek first the kingdom and everything else that you need will be added to you. Uh, Jesus is beyond exasperated here. <laughs> I just, it's like a week ago, we've been over this. We've done it twice. And you're worried about the bread. Why did they miss the bread? Because God moved and they didn't set up an internal, internal altar to reference the next time they needed God to move. You know, here, here's what happens. God answers our prayers, and we don't set up memorials, and we forget. And the next time we need God, we're worried about bread instead of the greater things. Jesus said, you'll do greater things than I've done. You'll we'll never do the greater things when we're focused on the littler things. Uh, Harry Bates, one of my pastors, uh, he, he taught me when, when he was working for an accounting firm, he said his boss would say, Bates, he said, you're over there in the corner stomping on ants and we got elephants running out the front door. What Christ is saying is you're over there worried about bread and we're in the midst of the movement and the coming of the kingdom of God and you're worried about your little, little bitty thing. Here's what I believe Christ is saying. He's saying, lift up your eyes with faith to the harvest and look for God to move in greater and greater and greater ways. Amen? Amen. So how do we set up altars? We, we set up altars by taking time, and I want to encourage you to do this this week. This is a spiritual practice for this week. We take time and we chart God's faithfulness. If you go back and you read in the Old Testament, they say time and time again, Tell the generations before of the wonderful works that I have done. Tell them lest they not forget. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, every time God moved, they would set up these altars and they would say, hey, we remember this, we reference this. So what we've got to do, what they did in the physical, we do in the spiritual, right? So what we've got to do is we've got to set up spiritual remembrances and altars to the times of God's faithfulness. Let's look how it plays out. Psalm 143. 
Psalm of David, he says, he says this. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and listen to my plea. Answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Don't put your servant on trial for no one is innocent before you. Now notice this. He says, my enemy has chased me. He has knocked me to the ground and forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I am losing hope. I am paralyzed with fear. Verse five, but I remember the days of old. I ponder on your great works and I think about what you have done. Y'all, the way that we keep our innocence and faith and the way that I believe we become people who don't miss what God is doing is we become people who remember what he's already done. And we look and we fight. And remember, it's not about the bread, but it's about the God of the bread. Amen? So this week, uh, I want to encourage you to take some time and write down just your journey of faith from the moment of awakening to today, where you're at, all the different seasons and valleys. And here's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see a lot of ups and downs, but I wanna tell you this. I think what else you're gonna see is today, you're not the person you were when you first started. That God's changed you. You may look back and say, man, I was so much stronger in my faith then. Guess what? God's maturing you. You know, I heard a pastor say one time, Callie and I were at a uh, retreat and he said, I hear young people say all the time, I, I wish I had the same passion or love for Jesus I had when I first got saved. And he said, I don't. He said, it was a fickle, immature love. It was hot pink Hollywood love. He said, what I have now is love that's been through trials, that's been tested by fire, and that's come out complete. You know, that's what we want. That's what we want to walk in. We want to walk in that potent faith. But the way that we do it, is we set up altars to the things that God has done and we eagerly watch and wait for him to work again. The enemy's mission, we're gonna close here, is to do everything he can do to get you to miss your mission. The enemy's mission is to, get, is to do everything he can do to get you to miss your mission. And how is he gonna do that? Almost always through discontentedness and a lack of provision. And so here's what we have to do. Y'all, I've been in a battle with this this whole last year. And moments when discontentment come up, it's saying God has provided for me before. He will provide for me again. And I'm gonna keep focused on the things that God is asking me to do. Amen? John Tyson said this. He said, we know everything about that which we can do little about and we know little about everything we can do everything about. Let's say it again. We know everything about that which we can do little about, and we know little about everything we can do everything about. Rather than aiming to influence people far and wide, perhaps we should turn our attention to the seemingly mundane around us where we can actually have an impact. So here's the question. People of faith, what mission has God given you? And what distractions are causing you to miss it? Here's why we set up altars. Because altars must exist where idols used to exist. Okay? So where there were idols in your heart about the way you look, about the clothes that you wear, the success that you have, and all of a sudden you have a moment where God provides for you in a radical way or he shows you that's not really who you are. You set up an idol an altar where that idol was, and that idol loses its power. 
And then you can start to walk out the things that God's called you to do. So question, where are some places where there were idols or there are idols that you need to set up altars? Okay, that's a super Christian-y way to frame it. So let me make it more simple. Where are there things in your heart, desires and ambitions and whatever, that are distracting you from the things that God's calling you to do? Where are the places of deep discontentment that if we're honest is actually a lack of faith? As you think through it, Where are the times where God's came through for you? Where are the times that God's moved for you? Where are the times that God has met you in your hurt and he's met you in your pain and he's spoken peace and he's brought provision and he's brought all the bread you could possibly need? What we're gonna do is we're gonna go into a time of response and I wanna encourage you Start thinking through these things. Where are places where maybe a cynical attitude has risen up in your heart towards others, towards moods of faith? Maybe you're just in a place where, man, I don't think, I was talking to somebody at the door on the way in and he's praying for Harvard University. And I'm like, give me that kind of faith. Give me that intercessory type of faith, right? Because y'all, our city is in desperate need of people with potent, faith. We had 93 murders last year, 93 mamas lost sons. We need to see a move of God in our city. And what our city needs most is if people with potent faith who pray for these things and then find their place in God's mission. Amen. But y'all, if we don't understand the work of Jesus, none of this matters. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have supplied your deepest need. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes and eats from me will never hunger again. I am the spring of water that never runs dry. Whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. Here's what the Pharisees misunderstood. It wasn't Jesus plus something that would bring them contentment, that would bring them peace. It was Jesus plus nothing. Jesus has provided everything we need in his life, in his sacrifice, in his resurrection. And so if you're in a place where you're just in a place of proverbial internal lack of peace and grace and you're full of shame, the gospel is that we can run to Jesus and we can get everything that we need for peace and for sustenance and for life. Amen. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that when your word goes out, it doesn't return void. And so God, I pray that this morning your word would find good soil in our hearts. 
God, right now, we just open our hearts to you. Is there anywhere where we've let religious cynicism in and we're just missing what you're doing? God, I pray that you open our eyes, open our hearts. God, for anybody in here who's, as we're going through all the different altars and places where you've been faithful, they've never seen it. God, I pray that right now you'd meet them right where they're at. God, as they're going through marital struggles and financial struggles, addictions and deep shames and secrets. God, that you would be the God who brings light into our darkness. That it would be like the warmth of the sun when they step into your grace. If he's pulling on your heart, I want to encourage you, let him in. Let him be the Lord of your life. And I'll tell you, it won't be easy, but you'll walk in what you were made for and who you were made for. Amen. Lastly, God, we just pray that you'd remind us of the good things that you've done. God, that we'd set up altars in our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that right now, God, that you'd bring to mind for us places where you were faithful. God, times where we were full of fear and you met us in the midst of our fear and you said, fear not, my peace I give to you. God, that when we were deep in our addiction and God, you brought us Christian friends and brothers to, lay, to, to lower us through the roof like the friends who lowered the paralyzed man. God, that you'd bring up times for us when you provided, you brought us what we needed. God, we set these things up as altars of memorials and God, we ask for greater things. God, we ask for an awakening that would have nothing to do with the works of man, but God, that would just bring about repentance and faith and hope and restoration in our world and our communities. God, help us be people that you can trust with potent seeds of faith. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Everybody said. Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review. Things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, if you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at, at NLC Downtown Little Rock to follow along with the life of our church.